0: Thank you, Joe. Isaiah 49. Tonight, as we consider the fourth in a series of ten portraits of Christ in Isaiah, we deal with the matter of Christ's exoneration. Jesus Christ, and only a prophet inspired of God could have foretold it. Jesus Christ, from the very beginning, from the very first day of His ministry... Was a man who was uh, who called for strong reaction. The people who followed Jesus either uh, were deeply devoted to him or they did not stay with him. In society, there was very little divided opinion or neutral opinion about him. We're told in John chapter 7 and 8 that there was divided opinion, the divided opinion being some people say he is a great prophet and some people say, no, he's a deceiver who is misleading the people. But nobody seemed to say, well, I don't really care about this man named Jesus. The passage we deal with tonight was a passage that gave the uh, Old Testament Jews a hard time. They didn't know what to do with it. They understood that God would send a Messiah, but in their mind, and I think maybe they saw in the Scriptures what they wanted to see, in their mind they saw a great ruling general who would come and destroy their enemies and run roughshod over the world and establish a universal Jewish kingdom in control of everything. This passage is a great paradox because it shows a ruling monarch, but it also shows somebody who is seemingly defeated and suffering and persecuted. And so it remains for us with twenty twenty hindsight in the benefit of Jesus and His ministry and the New Testament to look back and see that even though the prophet Isaiah did not understand what he was writing about, he accurately foretold both the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day, if you want to understand why they got so angry at Jesus when he went home to Nazareth and read from Isaiah 61, which is a passage we'll deal with in a few weeks, it is because... They had come to believe that the sufferer in these passages of Isaiah that you and I are sharing together was the nation Israel. The Jews had a collective paranoia about them as a people that let them believe that because of their unfaithfulness, they were the suffering servant of Jehovah who had to go through all kinds of trouble before they were restored. And Jesus, in his public pronouncements, assumed that role... For himself, and they couldn't handle it emotionally. And so tonight, I want us to look from this side of Calvary, and we can understand, even if Isaiah and the Jews of his day did not, that Christ had to pay the awful price that he did on the cross, or none of us, and indeed nobody anywhere, would be saved. He was first humiliated, and then he was exalted. The suffering, the self-sacrifice, the devotion to principle that was his, and his heedlessness of the consequences in terms of his own life are the foundation of all permanent success that you and I may have as Christians. For we too must be willing to put others ahead of ourselves as Jesus did That's what Peter tells us in the passage we dealt with this morning. We are called to do, to suffer in the same way that Jesus did by putting others first. We, too, are to be devoted to principles, caring more for what's right and what God wants than what somebody may think. And we, too, must trust the Lord to such an extent that we do what He says and let Him worry about the consequences. There is a truism that has nothing to do with Christianity that illustrates a great principle. That truism is, he who hesitates is lost. And that's true. It's true in the matter of Christianity. Often we become bogged in deliberations to the point that even the will of God is a matter of deliberation. And that's that's futile. In fact, it's unchristian and it's ungodly. Because when we can discern the plain and clear Word of God, what it says and what it means, there's only one thing to do with it. That's obey it. We don't need to consider it. God considered it before He ever said it. We are people of the book and no church has a right if it claims to be Christian to try to overrule or to avoid what the Bible teaches because somebody might not like it. If God had followed that principle in His dealings that are revealed in the Bible, there wouldn't have been anything in the Bible because there's nothing that God has ever done that drew unanimous human agreement. It'll never happen. It never has. It never will. So we talk tonight about the exoneration of Christ. He was maligned. He was reviled as we studied in First uh, Peter chapter 2 this morning. He was put down. He was misunderstood. He was accused. But just as every one of us, he was in God's hands and God exonerated and, and uh, brought His righteousness forth as the noonday, as it says in Psalm 37. In verses 1 to 3 of Isaiah 49, I want you to consider with me the calling of Christ. Christ. Here is a pre-incarnate witness inspired by the Holy Spirit that Isaiah gives us of Christ bearing witness himself as to what God has appointed him to do. Verses 1 to 3. Listen to me, O islands. Now, in the Hebrew, when it says islands, it, it is a metaphor to illustrate the ends of the earth or the farthest reachings. Uh, of anywhere, the the very outlying areas of, of humanity. Listen to me, old islands, and pay attention, peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named me, and He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He has concealed me, and He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. The calling of Christ. Notice in verse 1, he was foreknown. He was foreknown. Here is so many other places. The Scriptures affirm that God in his absolute power and sovereign uh, grace knows ahead of time what will happen. In the matter of men, we are told that John the Baptist was also called from the womb, appointed before birth to be a prophet. And what this foreknowing is, is a statement that Jesus came not by accident, but by the plan of God. He was foreknown. See Luke 1, 31 to 33, or you may not want to turn. I'll read it for you. Luke 1, 31 to 33 And behold, this is the angel speaking to Mary now. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Matthew 121 and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. These two gospel passages are illustrations or confirmation of Isaiah 49, one which says he was called from the womb, and indeed before he was even conceived, the angels of heaven revealed to the mother and to others that he would be. God's anointed one, the Messiah. Notice also that He was forenamed. For Matthew 1.21 says, You shall call His name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And it means Jehovah saves. And so Joshua becomes a foreshadowing in many ways of deliverance and of leadership that Christ would give to His people. And then notice in verse 2, not only is he foreknown and forenamed, he is forearmed. For verse 2 says that his mouth shall be a sharp sword. That is rather like Hebrews 4.12 that says the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and discerning the innermost thoughts of a man. This is consistent with the uh, symbolism that is used in Revelation 1. In Revelation 1.16, when Jesus was seen in His glorified state by John the apostle in Revelation 1.16... John says, And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When Jesus Christ was on earth, by voluntary limitation, he was a man. He had flesh and blood as we have, a body like ours, limited as a man by choice. But after the resurrection and the ascension, he re-ascended the throne in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God and he is glorified beyond human imagination. And when the world next sees Jesus Christ, they will see him as the glorified reigning monarch of the universe in a glorified resurrection form, not like us. He is forearmed by the sword of His mouth. He is the Word of God. You know, Jesus is called the Logos, the Logos, in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And nothing was created that was created Without Him, Jesus is the Word of God and the sword of His mouth is the Word of God as it is expressed by the absolute power of Christ. He is forearmed. It says here in Isaiah 49 too, that He has been concealed in the Lord's quiver, being made a select arrow. That is consistent with the gospel records. For Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4 that in the fullness of time, God revealed and brought forth His Son. When all was right, when the time was right, God revealed His Son. And then in verse 3, He is for sent. Or verses 2 and 3, He is for sent. He is commissioned. Notice how God calls Him my servant. God says to him, you are my unique servant. The designation, my servant, in this form is limited to the prophecies of Jesus. There are others who are called servants of Jehovah, servants of God, but not like this, not in the same way as Jesus was. The calling of Christ, he was foreknown... He was forenamed, he was forearmed with the Word of God, he was foresent, commissioned ahead of time and appointed to the task God had for him. And then notice in verses 4 to 6, here is what I have called the consolation of Christ. The consolation of Christ. In these verses, we see the human side of Jesus and the Jews couldn't understand that. They couldn't understand his humanity. They came up, as I mentioned before, with many wild explanations as to who this suffering servant was. But in these verses, we see his humanity. Not sinfulness, not weakness, the way we count weakness, but his humanity. But I said, verse 4, I have toiled in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and God is my strength. He says... It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved in Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Here is a very strange reaction to failure. Now, it was not a failure. But in humanity, it was seeming, it seemed to be futile and useless. He couldn't understand at all times the gravity and the greatness of everything that was going on. And God's response to his discouragement is very strange. I look around tonight and I see a number of our men who are involved in business. And as such, they work. With other people who report to them, people that they're that are accountable to them, they have to deal with very real personnel type problems. And gentlemen, and others, you just listen in when somebody comes to you and they're down and they're they're through and they're finished, and they want to resign. What do you do? Well, basically, I had a management type person tell me a long time ago, don't ever refuse a resignation. And that's probably right. And that's what you would expect to do. But that's not what God did. He was discouraged. He said, all I've done is in vain. It's useless. And God said, that's fine. Instead of just pointing you a messenger to Israel, I'm going to make you a messenger to the whole world. Strange indeed. It is something human wisdom would never come up with. But God in the face of discouragement said, All right, son, you're discouraged. I will give you a larger responsibility. The reaction was to give a still greater load. This, these verses are the first prophecy in the Old Testament of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. There are others, but this is the first time it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Israel would reject the Messiah. Notice, if you would, in the first part of verse 4, discouragement. The message was carried out, but not visibly accomplished. Now follow this reasoning. The first mission of Jesus, he stated it himself, was to call the lost sheep of the house of Israel back to God. And if you want to talk in purely human terms, at that point, Jesus Christ was an utter failure for to this day, the lost sheep of the house of Israel have not returned to Jehovah. The mission was carried out. He was faithful, but yet it was not visibly successful. Here is discouragement. Then in the last part of verse 4, Here is confidence in God. What he is really saying is, I don't see the results, but my judgment is in God because he is my Lord. I am his servant. Here is discouragement, but also confidence in God. And would to God that we as His people in First Baptist of Yukon could realize sometimes when we can't see what God's doing, when we can't feel a sense of accomplishment, that we do not rely on our feelings and on what we can see, but we just trust God for the results. And let Him be in charge and let Him worry about the consequences. That's what Jesus did. And then notice in verses 5 and 6, discouragement, confidence in God, and because he relied on God, even when he was discouraged, God enlarged his responsibility. Lesser troubles were forgotten in the face of his becoming a messenger and a light to all the nations of the earth. Here is the consolation of Christ. Christ came to call Israel back to Jehovah, but the end of their rejection was a salvation that was offered to the whole world. Here is the consolation of Christ. And then in verse 7, here is the coronation of Christ. This is just a glimpse, just a brief look, God drawing the curtain back just a little bit, and letting us see what is going to happen when Jesus is crowned Lord of lords and King of kings. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the one despised, the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes shall bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Doesn't it sound like Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected? Doesn't it sound like Psalm 118, 22, the very stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? He will be crowned king. Not because he was universally loved and accepted. He is the most hated man in the history of the world. Not because the way we measure success. Have you ever thought what Jesus would look like in the Baptist messenger? Friends, in two years, Jesus went from 7,000 in Sunday school at the Sermon on the Mount to, to eleven after Judas defected. Why, my goodness, he couldn't get called a possum trot. God doesn't always look at things the way we do, does He? And there will come a day when the church, having been raptured to meet the Lord in the air, when you and I, having sat down with Jesus at the marriage feast with the Lamb, When we come with Him, when He calls a halt to human history, when the nations have been judged, when the sheep have been separated from the goats, when Satan and his angels have been cast into the lake of fire, He will be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords because God said so and not because anybody thought He ought to be. Here is the coronation of Christ. Notice, first of all, it refers to him as the one who is despised and the one who is abhorred. We get things all backwards. We think when somebody is disgraced and rejected and put down in public, God's through with them. But look at the Bible. And you will not find one great man in Scripture from Moses, Joseph, Abraham, any of them, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, was universally hated by everybody. You will not find one great man in Scripture from the first page to the last who did not suffer public disgrace and rejection. Why, in our humanity, in our backwardness, You let a man make a mistake when he's 25 years old, he'll never be elected to high office. Well, friends, I want to tell you the greatest king that ever reigned a human kingdom was a murderer and an adulterer. Jesus Christ would have been dropped from the personnel file at the Baptist building because he had bad PR. First, he was humiliated. First, he was rejected. First, the world turned its back on him. And then, because he was faithful, God exalted him to be king of kings and lord of lords. And sometimes it happens in the individual life of a Christian. This is practical. This is not theology. This is something that meets every one of us where we live. In the lives of Christians, we encounter situations on the job. Young people, you encounter them at school. Sometimes, God forbid, it happens in the home. In society at large, we encounter situations where we either have to run from the situation or be disgraced and rejected by people. And we think that we're doing God a favor when we run from it so we won't be embarrassed. But until you are willing to be disgraced before the universe if that's what it takes for Jesus. God cannot use you. First, humiliation and then exaltation. We want the exaltation, but we don't want to pay the dues to get there. And that's humanity. And that's why we need the Lord. And that's why we need the Word because we'd never figure anything out if God hadn't explained it to us. First, humiliation and then exaltation. And Isaiah says, Kings will arise and princes will bow. Sounds like Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then notice in verses 8 through 10, we have seen the calling of Christ, the consolation of Christ, the coronation of Christ. Notice in verses 8 through 10, the compassion of Christ. There is a political truism which says power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But I am grateful tonight that we... That is not true of God. God has absolute power. But God has chosen to reveal Himself in one way to us, and that is in His Word. And God is always consistent with the Word, and God never goes outside the bounds set by the Word. And the Word reveals Him as a God of love and compassion. You know, God has no reason to put up with us. There is no reason God ought to put up with what God puts up with. Would you? I know some of you, you might as well not, you wouldn't. Just because He is what He is, God loves us, and there's no other explanation. See the compassion of Christ. God will meet the needs that He has promised to meet. Isaiah tells us in this passage and elsewhere that God will do two things God will restore Israel, and God will redeem men from all nations of the earth. Spiritually, this morally wasted world will be restored. Literally, Israel, which has already been physically regathered to the land of Palestine, will be restored in a theocracy, a God-operated monarchy during the kingdom period. God will keep His promises. They are good. The promises of God are good. There isn't anything the Bible says you need to doubt is going to take place. Unless God drops over and dies, the promises are good. Amen? God's promises are good. They're going to be carried out. You know, I sometimes get rather disgusted with myself because I know the Lord and I love the Lord and I know the Word and I know that God broke every rule and every power that has ever been set by the physical universe when he not only resuscitated but resurrected in a new body, the Lord Jesus Christ. But sometimes I get so nervous over the most insignificant things. Don't you? Remember the secret from 1 Peter 2, verse 23, which quoted Isaiah chapter 53, he trusted the Lord. That's the secret of Jesus. Jesus knew one thing. He had a job to do. Jesus knew that that job was going to cost him his life, but he knew that he'd been appointed to do it and he was willing to do it if God said so. And because he did, now he's king of kings and Lord of lords. In verse 8, See how God sustains Christ. God sustains Him by His own power. Thus says the Lord, In a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you, that's you with a capital Y, and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land to make them inherit desolate heritages. God sustains Christ, and in the work of Christ is provided the foundation for all things that God will do. And when Jesus sets up his kingdom on the earth, Israel will possess the land of Palestine without having to look across the border at her enemies. The land will be restored to where it is a land flowing with milk and honey fruitful in every way because the promises of God are good. And friends, I just believe that God's truthful and faithful. And if I had to believe that God's promises to Israel any, aren't any good, I wouldn't think His promises to me were very good. God sustains Christ. And then in verses 9 and 10, Christ in turn sustains His own. Christ sustains His own people. It says in verse 9, He will say to those who are bound, that is bound like tied up in prison, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed and their pasture will be on all bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst. Neither will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. To the prisoners, he says, be free. You and I are prisoners because we are bound by sin, and the only hope for our freedom and our release is through Christ. To those who are in darkness, he says, show yourselves. And Isaiah says elsewhere, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. He is the light of the world. God sustains Christ and Christ sustains His own. Here is the exoneration of Christ. And it is my belief that when in the Scriptures we find a pattern that expresses a principle, that pattern will always hold true. You can see many patterns in Scripture that repeat themselves over and over again because they are expressions of an eternal principle. And the pattern of service to God and success for God is seen in this passage. And I believe that it holds true for every one of us. Christ was called and God in His grace has called us who were once lost to trust Christ and be saved. Christ was called. He was called to suffer and to be a servant. And as 1 Peter so aptly expresses in the passage we dealt with this morning, we are called for the purpose of suffering as Christ suffered. Jesus said, whoever would be great among you, let him be the servant of all. We are called to suffer and to serve, just as Christ was. Christ was faithful to His calling. And because He was faithful, God exonerated Him. God vindicated His honor. God exalted Him to a place of honor. And so it is with us. The Apostle John quotes the glorified Lord Jesus in the Revelation as saying, Endure to the end, and I'll give you a crown. Is it not true of us? You as a Christian, or if you are not a Christian, the Spirit of God will honor God's Word, and you may this night confess your sins and be saved. We are called, but we are called for a purpose. The purpose is service. The purpose is to suffer if necessary as Christ suffered. And if when we have been called, then we are faithful, God will exalt us as He exalted Christ. Here is the pattern. I have dealt with numbers of people through the years who just didn't understand why, when they had given themselves into the hands of Jesus, everything did not suddenly and universally and automatically become rosy. It may be too late if you're a Christian to tell you this, but the only thing God promised you in this life when you trusted Jesus was that you could share the cross with Him. But when you have been faithful, then God will exalt you. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled or abased, but whoever humbles himself will be exhausted. Can we not respond to the great love that God has shown us by committing our lives to serve Him faithfully now so that in due time He can exalt us. May we pray. Father in heaven, I thank You for the truth so gloriously revealed in Your Word that we shall share with Jesus a throne of glory as we reign with Him in the kingdom. And Father, I thank you for you have revealed and life has shown that the greatest honor and privilege any Christian can have is to be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Lord, give us the long look. May we look past the troubles and the heartache and the problems and the confusion of today. And may we live and look forward. To the day when Christ takes absolute control of all now Lord open our hearts and show us what we need we in some ways are in the darkness call us forth show us what we are draw from us commitment confession repentance so that we might be what you want us to be Lord, may we be a people who always trust You to justify us, trust You to vindicate us, trust You for the consequences of everything You call us to do. Father, bless these who share in worship, meet every need and wrap them in arms of love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.